Hey, everybody. Welcome to Uncomfortable. I'm Amna Nawaz. You know, the goal here is to have honest and unflinching conversations about a lot of the topics that could be dividing a lot of Americans right now. And we have a very special guest here with us today, James Ree joins us live here in the studio. You are the executive chairman and CEO of Ashley Stewart. I will confess it's a brand I was not that familiar with before, but I've been fascinated to learn how you've brought this company around. Um, and thank you so much for being here. appreciate well, it. Thank you for letting me tell the story. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, uh, we've told you before you came here, we like to talk not only about what you do and why you believe so deeply in what you do, um, and you have this fascinating journey I want to talk about. We also like to talk about where people come from, how mm-hmm. they came to be the people that they are and believe the things that they do, which seems to have informed so much of your work. So tell me your story. Um, son of immigrants, first generation, born in the Bronx, uh, raised in Long Island. Uh, dad hung a shingle out and was a pediatrician and took care of kids. And I think that has been a, a real governor about value systems, about what it means to be a fiduciary and taking care, taking care of people. Uh, grew up uh, not with a lot of money, but didn't feel like we needed a lot, and didn't. But we didn't have a lot either. It was, I think, a pretty standard '70s, '80s middle class upbringing. Mm-hmm. Public school kid. Um, Are you an only child. A middle child. Middle child. Older brother, younger sister. Older brother came here when he was five because my parents didn't have enough money to bring him over uh, when he was first first five years of his life because my dad was in residency. Oh, wow. So in a so lot of ways- he was staying with family back in yeah, Korea? Yeah, with my grandmother. And so I was uh, the oldest child for a year, and then my brother came. What was that like? Do you remember? I don't remember. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that he was- uh, <laughs> I'm sure he was like, oh my God, I have a little brother. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm five years older than my younger sister. Um, and, uh, yeah, I grew up- benignly happy, mm, ignorant of a lot of uh, things that I've come to learn. I showed up at Harvard when I was 18 and didn't really understand. I was like, wow, there's wealth, there's private schools, didn't really know much about any of this. That was a whole new world for you. whole new world. Really? Yeah, really eye-opening, made a lot of great friends, Um, never really forgot about how I grew up. Uh, Again, don't really feel like there's, I need much. Right? I didn't yeah. really grow up that way. Uh, so uh, f- after graduating from Harvard... Um, what did you study in your undergrad? I studied uh, 1603 to 1914 English and American history and literature with a focus on social movements, on, on just ideological movements in people. What drove you to that? Why that? Uh, I like... As I, now that I'm older and more seasoned, uh, late 40s, um, you know, you look back and what has driven me, I believe, in most of my life is I fundamentally love uh, people mm. and being an advocate for people and uh, trying to make an impact in whatever way I can and just oftentimes standing up for the underdog. Uh, I have said that uh, publicly before. A lot of this, uh, I think about my mom a lot, about it wasn't very easy for her growing up. She, what do you mean by that? Well, she never spoke English particularly well, and she came over, and she, um, it was hard. Uh, she just, it, 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 was, it was a harder adjustment for her than it was for my father, because my father was out and about. But my mom- Was your mother mostly home? Was she was, most, she was mostly home, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, English was a barrier, and, uh, you know, she obviously was a great mom, is still a great mom, but- um, Was that something yeah. that was talked about, or did you just kind of witness it no. and start to- 
get that, oh, this is different from my mom than from my dad when you were older? I think I think all along I realized that back in the 70s, there wasn't a real discussion about emotional intelligence and EQ. This is all new things, right. but uh, I don't know. I think my ear is sensitive, perceptive. Um, it may be sort of the music guy in me. I'm a big music guy. and mm-hmm. um, But yeah, you know, you, you, you see things like that and... Uh, but I, I know that's what's impacted me when you when you see someone perfectly lovely person doing the best she can, and it's not wasn't as easy for her as others. And for many, they were life was harder for them than it is for her. I'm not saying her life was the hardest, but you saw those difficulties. Yeah, though. you see those it. resonated. Yeah, yeah. And, and you you kind of just registered and say, oh, you know, I feel very fortunate that I was born here. I speak English fluently. It's it's easy. Yeah, um, and. So you went on to Harvard. And then my dad thought, okay, I got my my immigrant's dream. I know he went to Harvard and yeah. and he, he looked a little bit weird when I was studying history and literature. Like, hmm, I don't know if that's very uh, marketable. but I'm What like, was the plan? Did you know what you wanted to do? Absolutely no idea. Great. And I just wanted to learn a lot, read a lot, hmm. uh, avid learner. Uh, um, but I promptly uh, graduated and all my friends went to you know, whatever it is, consulting firm, banking firm. Um, I taught high school. <laughs> I think I made $12,600 a year teaching high school out near Springfield, Massachusetts. Why did you choose to do that? Now that I'm older, I look back, it's consistent with, I have a habit of, I like to learn things. Mm-hmm. And then I rush back and tell as many people what I learned and teach it. And so if you think about it, I went to college. I felt very fortunate to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were kids that were borderline not going to college. And a third of them were kind of inner city kids. A third were underachieving kids that, you know, they just were underachieving, whether it's learning disabilities or behavioral problems. But And a third were international kids. Mm-hmm. And the culture in the school sometimes was uh, less than ideal. You had a lot of different people, different languages, different value systems. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the opportunity, even at that age, attracted me to just be as unifying a positive force as I possibly could. And you know, whether it's throwing football on the football field or you know doing math, and it's you guys, come on, let's all get this together. So I helped run a dorm, and I helped coach football and baseball. I taught history. I taught. Um, I came up with a basic financial literacy class. You came up with that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that was important? Because I had no idea about financial literacy growing up. I so think, you wanted other kids to know. Yeah. I, I don't think my dad owned a stock till he was, I don't even know. I don't think he knew what a stock was until. It, I, it is I, kind of amazing to me that it's still not part of our basic yeah. public education, just finances. Yeah, and particularly in this environment now where all the Fed policies are really uh, favoring uh, asset ownership. Yeah. Uh, you have massive asset inflation. And that's a conversation I guess we'll get into later, but mm-hmm. there's a it's creating a real division between asset owners and non asset owners. And it's it's exacerbating wealth differences, right? So after teaching you went to law school. I went to law school. Why'd you go to law school? I, same strain. I thought that I was gonna be a public defender, do good, um, loved it and but also cross-registered a lot at Harvard Business School and at MIT Sloan School Mm -hmm. to uh, learn uh, heavy-duty accounting and finance and um, corporate financial management, capital markets. Uh, I was basically synthesizing my own JD MBA. I did law review because I was interested in policy as well. And so I just learned a lot. You're a real underachiever here. 
Uh, I mean, you know, you just you kind of did it all. Did you have any direction with it? Were, were you just kind of just getting your arms around as much as you could at the time, not I, knowing where it was going to lead? In some ways, I still feel that way. I just really? keep, you know, you, life takes you different places, and I've tried to live life in a with certain consistent values. Um, but it's funny how life takes you things, and there's situational things where people they're either in need or there's an interesting investment opportunity, and you sort of just okay, I'll sort of focus my attention here. So let's talk about investments. You went on to start your own private equity investment firm, right? I did. Uh, Firepine Group. Mm-hmm. How, how did that happen? What made you want to take all your energy and resources yeah. and intelligence that way? So I spent, after law school, I went directly into a classic business school career. I went into mergers and acquisitions, and then I joined a prominent Boston growth private equity firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, mostly focused on retail consumer companies because what I didn't realize is that in addition to sort of the financial engineering and learning and investing is retail consumer, you really have to be perceptive about the things that are not on a piece of paper, about mm-hmm. watching people, how much do they love a brand. Just, like the relationship between people and the things that they buy. Yeah, and how their body moves when they buy something and their little facial expressions when they walk into a store and you just see things. And there were things that increasingly uh, I thought everyone saw. But I realized that some of them didn't see (laughs) some of these things. um, But that's what gravitated me to a retail consumer because even then, you know, you're not selling product. You're selling, there's an emotion that you're selling. It's the art of marketing, right? There's a broader there there. But uh, I left and I started my own firm and I called it Firepine Group because I think it's reflective of uh, my value system. The Firepine is a type of pine cone that on the surface of it, it looks like it's useless because it never seeds anything. Because The reason is because the seeds are encased in wax. And so, But when there's a forest fire and all else fails and burns, mm-hmm. the wax melts just long enough to protect the seeds, and it's these seeds that generally sprout new, for- new forests. Wow. And so the way uh, it was meaningful to me, my wife, I give her all the credit in the world for coming up with this because she said, I think this is who you are, where, one, I like transformational situations where whether it's teaching high school mm-hmm. or with companies that are underachieving, anything, and saying, look, no, there's so much value that you have. You're just not seeing it. Let's like you're 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 shorting yourself. And you're, a lot of the work you did, I think, previously at the other investment firm, but also with Firepine, was with distressed companies, right? Yeah, I call it distressed venture. Okay. So it's sort of um, I've done high growth as well. It's really impactful situations where it's really incredibly high growth, where you're transforming an industry, mm-hmm. or yeah, it's distressed. But it's not distressed in the sense there are a lot of distressed investors. All they do is cut costs, right? Right. I do distressed venture where it's it's like with a high school student, it's reimagining yourself and saying, oh, you're feeling, you don't think you're achieving very well, your grades are bad, you're down, your self-esteem's low. No, you're looking at yourself. That's not how you should look at yourself. You're so good at these four things. Mm-hmm. Do that. Why are, you, why, are you, why are you sulking and laboring on the fact that you're bad at these things? Like you're great at these things. And so that's what I do with companies. I pivot them it, hard. Are there a lot of, Firms taking that approach, or was this pretty no. novel when you're, I mean, distress ventures, this is the first time I'm hearing of yeah, it, but I is this an approach generally taken when you look at companies that are struggling? I don't, 
Um, is it a not, crowded landscape? Not, you're no, it's not, it's not because it's a, it's a weird. Uh, it's accumulation of all my weird life experiences where I'm a high school teacher, public school kid that I had friends, 700 people in my class and of all different types. It, I was the equal opportunity liker, right? I just, um, but I'm a lawyer. Um, I studied history and I'm a growth investor, but I'm also a bankruptcy savvy. I've been part of a distress firm too. Yeah. So you learn all of these things, and, and I keep going to different areas and learning them, and then you realize you they're all related, and it's taken me a while, but when I started this firm, and Ashley Stewart, which we'll get to, is sort of a culmination of some of this, it's like the end of the movie, The Matrix. You know when Keanu Reeves, at the end, he sees The Matrix, mm-hmm. and he really understands things. And mm-hmm. By learning all of these different things and how the world works in distress, how the banks are here, how venture works, growth works, how public school kids are, private school kids are, inner city kids. As someone who grew up pretty naively and just trying to figure out life, yeah. I didn't have a lot of guidance. Like my dad never really understood anything that I did. There was no one for me to talk to other than ultimately my father-in-law who had some experience. I could talk to somebody. I didn't have a lot of mentorship. I was just sort of figuring it out by myself. Mm-hmm. But over time, the grid got clear to me. You know, I was like, oh, this is how it really all works. What does that do for you? Because obviously you do things because they're satisfying to you in some way, right? They bring you some sort of fulfillment or joy or excitement or whatever that is. In all of those things you've done, whether you were dealing with a a student that was having trouble or a company that needed help, what does that do for you when you're able to be Keanu Reeves and step back and look at the matrix and say, oh, no, no, this this is how it should be going? There's nothing more satisfying than seeing someone's eyes open and realize, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I'm going to be really successful here. And that's where I fit in. And I, it's, it's a, as a father now of three daughters, uh, which is the ultimate fiduciary, right? Like you would do, any, <laughs> I think having children, you really realize what it means to be a fiduciary and right? you would do anything and it's instinctive. Um, it's not a term often linked with parenting, but you're it right. Is. That's yeah. where you learn to be a fiduciary. Yeah. And as an investor, I take being a fiduciary incredibly seriously. It's uh, I take a dollar. I am. It's your money, and yeah. it's it's a mindset. On it's changed a lot. Uh, and there's the not industry. everyone who approaches it that way. No, either. it's yeah. become more of a money managed a, a global institution. But um, but so that's you know that's it's it, it's incredibly gratifying when you can achieve success focused on other people's success, but ultimately you achieve success. And something that I came up with, and I think it's right, but one of my reasons why I like the decathlon is that it's one of the rare events in the Olympics where you actually don't have to win any of the 10 events, but you can still win the decathlon. Right. (laughs) And so I've always thought, I said, oh, you know... um, and it has broad-reaching implications of the meaning of being a fiduciary and, and service work and mm-hmm. thinking about other people as y- keeping people as successful as they can be within a band. Like you can't let leave people behind. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's been very gratifying to think about that. It's not a – sometimes it's an uncomfortable approach in certain cultures in the financial world because that's not – <laughs> it's not pervasive. I mean, the idea there is, you know, the strong survive, you win, right? right? You, you got to win. win. This is how, yeah. I think as you get older and as I've gotten older and I'm, you know, more seasoned or, or old, um, <laughs> and particularly with my seeing my kids, yeah. uh, 
you know, you don't, you don't have, it, it depends on, you don't have to win everything to win. And, you, and I think it really depends on your definition of what success is and, so and, let's talk about that because you know. you're, you are the executive chairman and CEO of Ashley Stewart. For people who aren't familiar with the brand, uh, it's it's a plus size clothing retailer, largely serving African American female communities. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, still, it's been that way for years and years. It's still mm-hmm. largely that way. I think it's fair uh, to say. It's changing. Changing. You've changed it. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was on the brink of bankruptcy. It had been through one bankruptcy in 2010. Is that right? Yes. And it was facing down another one. Yes. You were on the board yes. at the time. How did you come to be on the board of that company in the first place? Part of the private equity history is that you sit on a lot of boards. And it was uh, I was part of the investment firm that saved the company out of bankruptcy in 2010. Ah, okay. And I was on the board. And then I left that firm. Um, and I was sort of an outside consultant board member and you know I we had it was it wasn't just about the file for bankruptcy this would have been a liquidation right it was uh, insolvent and you can tell it didn't have a lot of credibility corporate wise didn't make money had already been bankrupt uh, not the greatest corporate reputation forget the brand but the company and it was over and uh, I got we had (laughs) it's one of those things it's just uh we had a discussion. What are we going to do? This is the board members sitting yeah. around talking about like, it. What are we going to so do? So you're facing down a second bankruptcy, right? Mm-hmm. And you make you make a very unusual decision. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, you know, I think as an investor, you're trained not to be emotional. And I sort of, I forget the legally blonde scene when she says, well, it's not devoid of passion or something like that. Law is not devoid of passion. But I think sometimes your best investments of money and your time are things driven by emotion but you have to have the rational sense to uh, to make sense of that emotion, and then the emotion drives performance afterwards. Okay. So this was just a situation where it was the same instinct I had when I decided to go teach high school, and my friends went and whatever to Goldman or Disney. Well, Paid off their student debt. Whatever it was, quickly, right? Yes. And yeah. uh, I just thought, I just it felt like the wrong thing to do. To not do anything, um, it was impossible. But why? I mean, I'm I'm sure in your yeah. in your career you've seen companies come along that are doing similarly poorly. Yeah. That a lot of that everyone else has basically written off and said yeah. this is not going to work. It's, why were you the one person to step forward yeah. and say? And this decision, by the way, is not small. You resign from the board yeah. and you say, "I'll take over." I shut I will down my be life CEO. in Boston, and yeah, it was. Uh, now, let's be clear. You've never been a CEO. No. Nope. You have no retail experience. Other than owning companies, but yeah, no. No fashion experience. None. No market experience serving these particular I'm communities. Not plus, I'm not plus-sized. You're I'm not, not Afri- a plus-sized I'm not African-American. Woman. I'm not that's a woman. Yep. Um, it was one of those things where what moved me was I just felt what was going to happen to the business was wrong. And because a lot of the employees the company hadn't had a really fair shot in a long time. And it goes to a lot of other things. Like the company had no, uh, just so for your listeners, and uh, it was founded in 1991, right? Mm-hmm. It was one of the first and only fashion brands for African-American women and who happened to be size 14 and up at the time. Now it's 12 and up. They were located really not in malls. They were located in urban areas, in strip malls, in downtown locations. And it was very much part of the 
urban revitalization period during the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. Um, Leadership shops in the communities, in, in the other community, words, where people would gather and to hang church, out. Right? Right, selling church hats and church dresses and grandmothers, mothers, and daughters going to shop together and buying the same outfit and accessorizing it slightly differently. And it was uh, a place where women... And statistically, right, there were a lot of stories, and I still see it today, of tears when the stores opened because it was a place that was beautifully merchandised. It was respectful. And it was oftentimes sitting next to a Western Union and, you know, something. And But you have this beautiful 3,500, 4,000-square-foot. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's being staffed by people within the community. And if you think about it, um, I don't think it's a particularly easy shopping experience often for women who are uh, fuller figured and who are black. And this place was a place where she was really comfortable. And it, and I said this a few times before, but it reminded me in a weird way of my mom. How so? Because there were times in growing up when I saw my mom enter into a place where she could speak, say, Korean, and she was a different person. Like it was just so comfortable. I could see it in her neckline and her shoulders. The stress was out, just the stress of trying to articulate what she wanted. Trying to fit in somewhere that yeah, she didn't. She couldn't speak, like what to, to ask for. Like I remember her asking for uh, some anti rust spray at a local hardware store, and she couldn't, she didn't know how to say that for our basketball like hoop. Yeah. And she was treated really poorly. And I remember going in there and saying, you know, I think I must have been 14 years old and saying, it's really, why would you speak to my mother like that? Like, it's not nice. Like, why why would you, you do You said that as a kid? Absolutely. I did it several times and not in a confrontational way, but in a firm way and saying, please don't do that. Like, why would you do that? And... I don't know. So a lot of these things, being a dad of three daughters and also having been in private equity a long time where, look, I think private equity in the purest form is a really great thing. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed it. I still manage money, right? I still do it. But is there a certain heartlessness to some private equity? You bet there is, right? And there are a lot of people who are impacted by it, who don't know what private equity is, but their companies are owned by private equity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just, so I didn't sign up forever. So what I did is that I- You said we're going to give this six months. Six months. We're going to see how this goes. I knew it was going into, no, I knew it was going into- Bankruptcy. Yeah. There's no way to avoid that. I've been around long enough. I I knew. um, Look, was it definite? Was it 90? No. Was it 99.8% chance? Yes. Uh, look, within the first week or two, we were selling scrap metal in the warehouse to try to raise money to help make sure we could make payroll. It was that dire a situation. So what is your goal at that point? You know bankruptcy is going to hit. You have this incredible brand that's got loyalty in these communities. Mm-hmm. You have this emotion behind it. You've got this need yeah. to try to fix it. What's the goal? The goal was to, uh, I was hoping, not to get too technical on this, but it, it, this was August 2013. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get it to March 2014, which was when you have a big Mother's Day, Spring, Easter selling. It's it's a oh, it's, the next re- big it's a really good season potential. for the company, right? And I knew that at that point, just given my bankruptcy experience, and I'm a lawyer too, right? I could gently put it into a Chapter 11, mm-hmm. and I was hoping that a strategic buyer, like a 
uh, not not another retailer would buy the stores Mm -hmm. and try to save as many of the local stores as possible to mitigate the damage yeah and then sustain the jobs and it was more than that a lot of our local managers are called miss ashley these are the women who work in the store. Yeah, it's not a lot of them. It's not a job. It's it's honestly for some. It's, they've been there for fifteen years. It's an identity. It's oh, you're Miss Ashley. Hey, when are you getting the new stuff in Miss Ashley? What's your advice, Miss Ashley? And in an era where people are uh, scrambling to find examples of like old fashioned communal community values and tight knit communities, and it's here. <laughs> It's right here. No one ever wants to write about it, and that's why I'm very appreciative you're giving me a, a chance to talk about them. But a lot of our store managers and our customers, they're, what they do in their communities is it's, it's great. Let me ask you about this. Yeah. Though you, I'll take away the suspense here, too. You, you turn the whole thing around. Well, I, didn't turn I mean, a- you have... You have remade the yeah. brand. It is now incredibly profitable, yeah. right? You, you had to make some tough calls along the way, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you slashed a bunch of stores. Mm-hmm. You slashed a bunch of staff. Um, you shuttered the C-suite, right? You moved yep. down to a cubicle with mm-hmm. everybody else. Um, but in all those tough business decisions, there was one quote I would pulled out. You, you talked about it in an interview um, because this is a business at the end of the day. You have to make money to yes. survive. But you said this about your customers. You said, we are a mission-driven business. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be clear, you're talking about a fashion brand here. But you said, we are a mission-driven business. We believe in advocating for a woman who could sometimes use more advocacy. Everything we do is to serve her. Yeah. What do you mean by that? This woman, so I talk about this company like a woman often. So, and it helps because... Her name's Ashley Stewart, right? And it's also part of the strategy, and a lot of media people really understand what I've been trying to do in terms of anthropomorphizing the brand in a social media-driven commerce, right? Right. Making the business into a a person. It's a person, right? But this brand and this retail location, these retail locations, despite the failings of the corporate entity, no Wi-Fi, not paying its bills, e-com is non-existent, the customers didn't care because they went into these stores and they spoke to their friends and this brand in a lot of ways was is still it is an advocate for these women it, it's it's a again as a father of three daughters it's a very positive brand she comes in she gets styled she often comes in two three times a week and a lot of times it's not to shop. It's like the old Tupperware thing when you're just talking with your friends. Just and, to come and be yeah, in, I'll come in back, community I'll, with I'll people. I'll come back later. And it's tied yeah. into church. And, um, and you know, I don't have all the statistics. And people, you know, have statistics. And I, I don't have as many of them off the cuff. But do I think that African-American women in some of these neighborhoods have an awful lot on their plate? Yes, I do. You know, and... This brand was a little bit of a refuge at times, emotional refuge for them. I don't, I, I didn't see this. Most investors saw this. Oh, it's, a, it's fashion. It's apparel, and I don't view it that way. I don't even view it as a plus brand. I thought that the apparel was purchased as almost a manifestation of self-esteem, friendship. It just happened to be manifested in apparel. That self-esteem, confidence, and feeling good about yourself, uh, the clothes were, uh, they're not shy. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's fashion for people who are a little bit bigger. That's it, you know, than size two. 
I was going to say bigger. They're actually yeah, it's average. Normal. It's actually really normal. Average size. And this you know? whole, we should talk about this too because the plus size label in America, and yeah. I know it's on your website, it's the way we market clothes of not. a certain size. It's normal. It, it's average, right? The average yeah. woman in America is what, 14, like a 14 16. now? Yes. So how can you not, to me, as I was getting to know this, and it was really backbreaking those first six months. I mean, it was, it was bad. I mean, it was, I was, for lack of a better word, completely off the grid. You know, I'm away from my family. As you know, the business is in Secaucus, and it's in a, it was in a converted warehouse. That's in New Jersey, by the way. That's in New Jersey, yeah, which is not that far from New York. <laughs> no. It's one stop, right? Um, you know, but you're off the grid and you're lonely, I'm away from my family. Did you ever in those moments think, what the hell am I doing Absolutely. Here? Did uh, you? Absolutely. There were moments where I would, uh, there's one pretty well-known picture of me We in December of 2013, which was four months into my stint there, we were really out of money. It was, I had sold everything I could to monetize to cash. There's no goodwill to draw from because the company didn't have goodwill. Mm-hmm. It was not a particularly well-known brand because this is a whole other conversation. One of the reasons why I also sort of got involved is uh, a lot of the money that could have found this interesting, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of capital controlled by women <laughs> or minority women. And that's not to say Those people Those numbers are, are abysmal, to be right. clear. Yeah. It's not to say people are prejudiced or I'm not saying that but there's a bias to knowing things investing in things that you're familiar with mm-hmm. that, and so when you put all of this in place there was one time in December I thought it was over and uh, you know we ended up giving away something like $10,000 to local charities I had the 40 best stores give money away to each of their local neighborhoods we had a big party at the local YWCA in Brooklyn for homeless women I really thought this was the last hurrah for the business that and it was our you way. You thought it was over at that point. It was over. And I, I thought that at this point, you know, I, I was very obviously upset and I was tired. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't despair a lot, like, as a person. But, yeah, I was a little bit just like, oh, my gosh, like, this, I, I failed. And I did everything. <laughs> it was, I worked so hard. Because um, you're trying to make believers out of people, too, right? After you lose over and over and over again, you're yeah. saying no. Like, you have something that is so valuable. Like you think that all of these fancy businesses with fancy storefronts, fancy this, those are all cosmetic. You have one thing that money can't buy. You have 20 plus years of social nexus, real loyal friendships. Mm-hmm. And don't ever undervalue that and keep your chin up. But to, to say this and to also say, now putting on my investor hat, that – my job is to predict the future. I was like, in the future, that's the only thing that's going to matter because the world's going to get ugly. There's going to be all sorts of different news and this, what's the truth, what's... Our customers believe what we say in the stores. Mm-hmm. And I, I deserve zero credit for any of it. This, these are women who sustained this business for 10, 15 years. So anyway, so... Um, so you're four months in. You think yeah. it's all over. I go back for the Christmas. Yeah. And I'm scratching my head saying, we got somehow get a reprieve. Because meanwhile, all this is happening. The distribution company won't ship our goods out because we can't pay the bills. The e-com site's about to liquidate. The, the ABL, the, the lender, is starting to really squeeze liquidity. Mm-hmm. Somehow we got a reprieve, you know, I, and... 
we, we stumbled our way to March 9th, 2014. We filed the company for bankruptcy in an orderly way. And then I went around begging for uh, money. From like whom? Anyone. Like, so you, when it happens, you hire, you have to have an advisor and they shop the assets. Mm-hmm. And no one really, look, I don't know, in fairness, I don't think it was, this is why Distressed Venture is such a, my pitch was, listen, I know this company's never made money. I know. That's a great opener, by the way, yeah, when you're asking someone for totally, money. Totally. <laughs> <you know? laughs> this is totally. a terrible company. Right, I understand, right. I understand <laughs> there's no credibility here. It's. Did we just put in Wi-Fi, which is, was our big technological breakthrough, right? Okay. But I believe that this loyalty that I'm going to transplant this into a new entity, I've rewritten. If you think about my weird career, everything that I had learned, I tried to give to this situation. So, like you know, running the inventory, like uh, like using bond duration principles from my finance days and then Mm. lawyer like we had no money for lawyers i read every contract alone and i'm trying to you know tie it all together and so i said this is what's going to happen we're going to do a social media mobile driven uh business it's going to be a kind of a anthropomorphication and movement-based um business that happens to have 90 physical locations we happen to sell clothes Mm -hmm. we are going to diversify the um one thing i'm very proud of would you know, I said, why wouldn't this brand and the values that it stands for be a- appealing to any woman? Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't outside of just it's the not race based. It's like yeah, it's, community. It's largely closed, served till now. Yeah, I'm really proud that it's. Um, I always talk about it. It's like I, one of the major reasons why I did this is that as a historian, remember, remember, this is a historically very significant brand. There are not many brands that were for African American women, and for a while, no one talked about it. Mm-hmm. I talk about it all the time. It's one of the major reasons why I did this. And you're looking at me and saying, Well, I'm looking why at you because I'm considering, like, I'm picturing in my mind what this would have looked like. To be clear, you are, you're a first-generation yep. Korean-American mm-hmm. man yep. who is going around to investment firms asking for money mm-hmm. for a business for plus-size African-American women. Totally. You are the least likely messenger. Yeah. So how did it work? Not well. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and it was that plus oh, you've never done that before, and what do you know about the customer? And it's never made money before, and I don't understand this social media-driven anthropomorphication strategy, and what you're saying that the world's going to be looking like in five, six years, where people be craving for loyalty and craving for truth, and they're like, that doesn't seem like the world today. I said, but that's the world it's going to be, and when you look at all of the tenets of this business who cares about that the business i i i've rewritten the business model what you can't replicate are these relationships and what and it's worth it's worth everything and it's something very positive so i got shut down um for all of those reasons whether it's because distressed firms were like this is really venture right or mm-hmm. venture firms saying out of bankruptcy like right. that's distress right or people saying, you know, oh, I don't believe that this is this African American brand will be appealing to other people, and me saying, but why? Like, you know, and people. But why? Let me. Why were you so convinced? I mean, you'd never done this before. Yeah. You'd never been invested on this level before. You'd no. never served in that role before. No. 
why why did you believe it all at that point? What kept you from just saying, mm. you know what, well tried, I, I, I can go back to doing what I was doing before very easily. I why think, did you keep going? I think it was the employees in the stores in particular. Certain members of my team at corporate who really, they should have all left, um, but they stayed till 3, 4 in the morning every night. And Because I said, you know, why not? Can you hang with me for a few more months? Let's just, we've been this far, let's try. But when I went into the stores where I spent most of my time to try to understand the ethos of the company, and I was also trying to figure out on the more supply chain, like how the goods were flowing, and I'm looking at all the pricing, and she believed in it. And it was a, it was a very interesting moment when you're off the grid, and it's about to go, and people are saying, they're laughing. Some of them, right, laughing and saying, we told you. Or why did you do this? Like you spent all this time, you were this public school kid and they went to Harvard and this, Harvard and this, and you were at t- tall buildings in Boston. And now you're in a warehouse and like, why did you do this? The only people that really stood up for this hope were my closest friends, my wife, my family, and my kids were too young to really understand this, so they had to stand up for me. But it was the, <laughs> it, it was the women in the stores. You did it for them. They fought. They, they, they were there. And I was very honest with them and saying, we're in trouble. Like, we could be just out. But you know the relationships you have with your customers are different. Like, and you know it. And they said, we know it. It's like a reality show in here. Like, it's really real. I was like, you got to fight. And they believed. And in the beginning, when I first went to the stores, um, you can imagine uh, they had the same reaction. I, I remember, it's like, you? When they saw you walk in? You? Yeah. Was and that I, tough? No. Did you I, get any questions? No, like, what are you I doing got, here? I got What's you. Your, what, yeah. That was you? <laughs> and I looked them in the eye and it was, yeah, me. What How's else? the company doing today? It's, it's, it's good. I mean, we have become... Um, one of the highest penetrated e-com businesses in women's apparel. We are uh, almost 40 to 50% Caucasian online. 40 to 50? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm proud of is that the net contribution from e-com from non-urban neighborhoods is close to paying for the store labor by the end of next year. So I think that we're one of the few companies, and it's designed this way, to be a net importer of capital into a lot of these neighborhoods because we're, we're exporting the value system of black women and saying, come, come join. Like, why? This is awesome. You said something in 2016. You were talking back about why you stuck with it and kind of looking forward to seeing where the market would go, how things would sh- you thought things would shift. Yeah. Um, you talked about, I want to make sure I get this right, uh, part of your thinking, you said, during the first six months was when you look at the world over the next 10 years, are you going to bet on social media that women oversized 12 will have their day? Will non-black women look at black women as emblems of beauty? Mm-hmm. How did you see that? How did you know that was something worth banking on? I think that's part of being an investor, right? That's... Um that's what I've made my career. You make bets and macro macro bets, uh, but I think it was it was partly just from the diverse life experience. Um, you know, I've studied abroad. I've traveled a lot. I wrote for a travel book. I've 
I've constantly put myself in weird situations of being completely over my head. Um, and I'm okay with it. And I always ask questions and I'm not afraid to look stupid ever, right? It's just, I don't care. Uh, but it's all of being son of um, immigrants, I think, helped too. And it just, I like to focus on these transcendent values. I have friends from every race, religion, country, and like, I really believe people are the same. Like, it's in, in the end of the day, particularly after being a father, like, people really, what they want, they just want to have something decent for their kids and to be able to feed them, to send them to a good school if they want to go to school and to have grandkids. I, I really believe it's that simple, and it's in every culture I've been in, I see that. And uh, so I always focus on these transcendent things. And so when I look at the trends of this business and you look at the demographics in this country, what is it, what is it that I saw that was so um, honorable and awesome about this culture of black women and Ashley Stewart. Like, look at me. And I'm like, that's a human it's a human moment. It's like listening to great opera. There are certain things in life that are transcendent. And I, I don't know. So that was the bet. And if you look at symbols, and at the time I was trying to tell prospective investors, hey, um, I'm pretty sure that uh, there are a lot of women who think Beyonce is incredible role model. What, what about Misty Copeland? And at that time, around that time, Hamilton was just, I said, what, look. And so I think that like, those were the macro investor bets that I was making. I, mm -hmm. And obviously as a human being too, you know, maybe it's a little bit naive or maybe it's a little bit being an optimist. But I was like, you know, I think that this is awesome. <laughs> like I'm really proud to be part of this. Let me ask you this though, because <laughs> you talk about serving this community and when you look at all you know, social factors and demographics and, and measures in terms of access and, and pay parity and all those things, African-American women are always behind on those, right? Mm -hmm. When you talk about underserved and underrepresented. And so in developing the brand and in, in saving the brand and growing the brand, you gave them a place to put their money, right? To, to be served in this way. Mm -hmm. What more can you do? Do you, do you have black women in your executive levels? Do, are they on your board? Not on the board. Um, it's just me and the two reps from the ownership group. Mm -hmm. um, we are actively recruiting uh, African-American women for a couple positions in the company. There are many, uh, if you came into our office, you would think you were at the United Nations. It's like every race, religion, language, it's great. It's an all, they're all women executive leaders. Which All female, it, entirely. Um, the three major P&L drivers of the company are women. And if you think about everything that's going on, on the West Coast, too, I, I tried to create a little utopia, right? It was an experiment four years ago, saying mm -hmm. all of these things that you're reading in the paper right now, the speech that the women leaders got when they started, I just said, listen, I don't need you to be mom here. The money guy, I'll be Santa Claus. I'll be the soft, the money guy will be. Hmm. I just need you to, you go, hmm. right? Make meritocratic, objective, fact-based decisions, go. And it's worked incredibly well. Um, 
they don't even need me anymore. They keep me around just because. <laughs> like I, you know, <laughs> you're the money guy. Um, no, no, they don't. They don't. Need, they don't even need, need, even need that anymore. Why, it's more, I'm curious because you've got insight into these different worlds. Why do you think it was so hard? When you're making a compelling case like the one you were making for the company when it needed money and you're going around to these people who have it, why do you think it, is, it was so hard to make the case? Why don't you think people heard what you were saying? I, I think that any organization, whether it's a baseball team, investment team, a- any kind of team, it's great to have not diversity for diversity's sake, but just it's great to have different points of view, right? And you keep noshing on the different points of view and you get to the best answer. I believe that this company, operating history aside, okay, because in fairness, it was a tall bet for me to convince someone that this would work, mm-hmm. right? And again, there's, this shows you a dislocation of capital. There are not a lot of distressed venture or sort of these type of firms because that's a whole other conversation about their institution, institutional mandate. But yeah, I, 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 I believe that it, it didn't help my cause that there were not women who had experience with this brand. It's hard to convince someone in a conference room without any context, and you're not in a store, saying, no, trust me. When I looked at the lines in her neck when she walked in, I saw something. And you have to believe me that our store manager in Brick Church visits her customer in the hospital because she knows that the customer does not have family because they're in the same church and she goes. I could rattle off a hundred stories like this about customers bringing in food for employees and inviting them back home and the employees going out and buying food to feed their customers in the stores on Sundays after church. And these were not compelling stories No, for, for, for the large know, the men that you were large, pitching. Yeah, it's right? sort of, what's that mean, James? I mean, look, it's bankrupt twice. I was like, I, I'll get to the numbers later. It'll work, but think about what I'm saying when you really tell these stories. This is there's a lot of embedded emotion here, and in a world where things are getting more emotionless, and people are just, uh, just it, nothing moves people anymore. It, it doesn't. We're so just impervious to. I don't know, uh, and particularly on a commercial basis where everyone's trying to compete on size, speed power, there is always going to be room off the grid for smaller companies and leaders and great stories and people who distinguish themselves in a different way. And I often talk about the battle between sort of size and power versus soul. And if you see where this country is going, and again, this was something that I made a bet. I think generally a lot of it has played out, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm betting on something different and saying I, I, I'm never – it's like the decathlon, getting back to the decathlon. It's, I'm never going to be the biggest, never going to be the fastest, never going to be the best, quote best. Don't care. Re- what's the definition of success? And I think that one day if people will say that this brand, it did a real service, whether it's product or emotionally for its customer base – and it did it in a great way. I hope that commercially that ends up being results in commercial success so that we can sustain the business. And it's obviously harder and harder, right? You have Amazon all over the place, and there's a lot of uh, regulatory and uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? 
we're doing the best we can. And, and I think a lot of this is like a life lesson of just accepting who you are. It's the fire pine analogy and saying, look, these are our strengths and we have to play to them. And we're not going to let anyone tell us what our strengths, we're going to, we know what they are. So let's just stick to it and do the best we can. And I think that if you think about it that way, you know, what I'm proud about is that our business strategy, I, I just, if in a lot of ways, Ashley Stewart was this woman's best friend for a long time and the, Ashley Stewart didn't have an advocate. So it came in this form, right? Kind of odd. But I think sometimes, uh, it's a message to your uh, listeners. Um, sometimes help comes from the most ridiculously unlikely sources, <laughs> right? And sometimes you expect help from people that, and they don't give it to you. Mm-hmm. And that's just a lesson in life, right? So it's to be open-minded about where help could come from. And, you know, this woman doesn't need it. it need a, she needed an advocate. She needed an advocate. And so she got one. But she doesn't need an advocate all the time, and so she's a tough lady, and she'll, we're building a sustainable business, and she has to sustain this company, like, over time. It's no, I'm purposely doing that. Um, but if our strategy is just to be her best friend, which is, why can't it be, and you can see where the business is morphing, if you're someone's best friend, you really have her ear, and we have a net promoter score um, of 90, which is one of the highest. What does that mean? It's the number of people who would advocate for you oh, minus okay. the number of people who would detract. 90, so like 90, the ends of the spectrum, basically. 90 is yeah. like a ridiculous score. This global consulting firm, and yeah. they're like, oh, my gosh, we've never seen a score like this before. And they, and they didn't even know the brand because it's the whole other conversation. They didn't know. This global consultant didn't know of this little urban brand. Yeah. But when you have a net promoter score of like this, then and she listens to you, why can't we sell other things? Why can't we um, say, hey, we, there's this great lipstick? And Is that the plan from here now? That's, that's where – and part of the wonderful thing about it is that one of the things I think that the duty of Ashley Stewart to do is I spent some time down in Atlanta with uh, Digital Undivided with their first cohort, which is a uh, like an entrepreneur tech incubator for young Latina and black women. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs with product. Or, and so we're showcasing more and more young women and just for free. Like we have this Ashley TV. We have a pink couch. And we just say we, we talk to three and a half million women a day mm-hmm. with a very high loyalty score. And we just Over say, social media. These are their yeah, e-com, the stores, yeah. social media. And so you're not using the Ashley Stewart brand to amplify and other Ashleys, other real life, <laughs> real life Ashleys, and saying, "Hey, look here! Like this is we're have we found something that's cool. The founder is cool. What a great story! So listen to her story, and we think you might like the product too. And we got a great deal for you on it. What do your daughters make of all this now?" I hope they're proud. You know, I I think that uh, like I there are very few websites that I feel comfortable with them reading soup to nuts, and mm-hmm. I'm very I'm very comfortable with the content of our social media site. It's very positive. It's a lot of women supporting other women. And if you think about the profound implication of the technology here, you had a lot of Ashleys, and there everyone has an Ashley inside them. Everyone's still in sixth grade somewhere. Okay, and I view that as just everyone 
needs to be humble enough to admit that they all have insecurities, right? So our literal Ashleys were isolated in these uh, neighborhoods, no Wi-Fi, no connectivity, nothing. A lot of them were not using smartphones, completely isolated. We're using technology to force them to use some technology, every source computers, high-speed digital access, um, state-of-the-art time and attendance system, iPads. So it's a real technological success story about bringing technology, which has been funded by e-com, mm-hmm. into these communities and training employees and customers to use technology to get better deals. Right? It's, it's, uh, the time and attendance system allows us to pay all of our employees if they don't have a bank, bank account with a debit card. Mm-hmm. So there's no fees to cash checks. So I view that as almost theft, frankly. Um, and so they're being paid what they're being paid now. So technology can be incredibly, uh, you know, leveling or, or fair, making things fair. It doesn't have to distort differences, which it can as well. So that's, that's the plan. And like we're doing, uh, we're really tied much more into media these days. So for this year, for the first time, other consumer companies have started paying us money to market their brands to our customers. As tr- They're coming to you now mm-hmm. to try to get to your yeah, audience. Yeah, because we have such a loyal customer yeah. base and, there's, and classic distribution channels and advertising, as you know, it's all changing. Mm-hmm. So that's happening. And then, uh, you know, we're this Ashley TV and some of these things, we had a model contest. I think we got like 88,000 applicants on Instagram in one week. And these are all women who want to be the face of Ashley Stewart, or a, right? A or model. A model. A right? model. Yeah. Um, so if you think 88,000? Mm-hmm. It's incredible. So if you think about the continuum of engagement, when you're saying, I just want to advocate for this woman. Yeah. So, okay, some of you just want to come in and spend a day in the store and not buy anything. Cool. Some of you would want to buy this dress. That's great, too. But you want now to be a model? Okay, we can make that happen. You want to do, uh, over time, maybe a recording contract? Sure. Who knows where I could go from here? And because we are so content-rich, remember I said to you before that the store said it's like a reality show in here? Mm -hmm. We've been approached by a lot of people to make movies and reality shows and really... So people can watch out for that now. James Ray, you sound like you have... Limitless plans for no, I, this brand. I think I think there's an opportunity, and there will be people uh, much more qualified than I to execute on a lot. Like I'm, you know, people say, "Are you the?" I, I think the first day I went down there, I know I said I was the least qualified person to run the company, and I. You and still believe that? I think that I'm qualified because just like four years ago, remember the concept of being a fiduciary. My intent was, and still is, incredibly pure. Like I really want this. I want this to thrive. Like it would be. It's. It's. I think it's a really net positive thing in our country, um, particularly with everything that's going on. It's kind of a ragtag group of people, feel good underdog story. We're doing the best we can. We don't have as many resources as everyone. We're. We're. But it's a lot of old-fashioned values mixed in with some new math and technology. It's all the makings of a good story. Right, like we're doing the best we can. I'm so grateful that you could come by today to share your story with us. James Ree, the CEO of Ashley Stewart. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me tell the story. 
Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.